0: When Donald Trump takes the oath of office to become the 45th president of the United States, it's going to mark the second time in 16 years that the loser of the popular vote winds up in the Oval Office.
1: And before the year 2000, it only happened three other times in American history.
0: That's true for only one reason, the Electoral College, the institution that since the nation's founding has apportioned presidential votes according to states' populations. It gives a lot of power to the most populous states like California or Texas or New York, but it also reserves critical leverage for small states like New Hampshire or Vermont, Wyoming or Idaho. And for more than 200 years, that's what we've told ourselves, that we need this electoral college to prevent some sort of tyranny by which big states will trample all over the small ones. But in 2016, does that make any sense? And is it really what the Electoral College is all about?
1: On this episode of Created Equal, we'll look at how the Electoral College was created through something that made the founding fathers great, compromise. But in that compromise, the founders failed to confront deep-seated inequalities in the nation and instead created a government that still today reflects that injustice. I'm Laura Weber-Davis.
0: And I'm Stephen Henderson from WDET in Detroit. This is Created Equal.
2: In this country, our courts are the great levelers.
3: And that the rights of every man are diminished. And the rights of one man are threatened.
2: This nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We're founded on the principle. We hold these truths to be self-evident.
0: That all men are created equal. That all men are created equal. All men are created equal.
1: Immigrants come to America because of the possibilities, the potential for a better life, an equal opportunity to prosper, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Famous words from Thomas Jefferson, and just as our founding fathers had intended for generations to come. It all leads to a modern notion that our system of government has fairness in its bedrock. We don't have dictators, we have free elections. Outcomes in America are based on merit.
0: Yeah, Laura, except that is when it comes to electing a president. Literally, the person who gets the fewest votes, the person who'd be the loser in any other kind of contest, can wind up as the winner. More people voted for Al Gore in the year 2000 than George W. Bush, but Bush went on to serve four years and then another four in the White House. Now Donald Trump will be president, after receiving nearly 3 million fewer votes than Hillary Clinton did.
1: What would we say if we saw this happen in other countries? Places that we think of as less sophisticated when it comes to democracy. We'd think it was outrageous. We'd look down our noses at the lack of fairness.
0: But here, the Electoral College is the way we select presidents. Everyone just accepts that that's the way it is because, well, it's the way it always has been.
1: But why? How did this system come about? As with so many American institutions, the answer is compromise. In the summer of 1787, when the delegates were gathered to forge the new nation's constitution in Philadelphia, there were all sorts of issues that confounded the deliberations. How much power should the president have? Should Congress have more checks on executive power? Should states retain more power than the federal government?
0: And when it came to the very important question about how to choose a president every four years— the issues and tensions involved were rooted pretty deeply in a wide array of inequalities. Take slaveholding states. They were worried that a popular vote for president gave too much advantage to the more populous northern states and possibly to abolitionist sentiments. There were also wide disparities in the way states decided who could vote. Some states allowed women to vote while others didn't. Others said free men could vote but couldn't agree on how to define that term. And rather than take on those inequalities, rather than dig into them and try to resolve them for the country and its future, the founders compromised. And we wound up with the Electoral College as a part of the new country's political and cultural fabric.
3: The reasons that they chose the Electoral College – would not be reasons that would make sense today.
1: That's Richard Primus, a constitutional law expert from the University of Michigan.
3: The Electoral College today serves essentially no good purpose. We would never choose it on a blank slate. But in 1787, the writers of the Constitution faced a very different set of circumstances.
1: All right, so there are a lot of moving parts here, and compromise is not a perfect process. It's less like a song that everyone knows the words to. And it's more like jazz. There are distinct voices, and everyone has to take a turn with the lead. So for this story, let's get some other voices in the mix here. In addition to Richard Primus, who will walk us through the creation of the Electoral College, we'll also hear musically from some other interests. So the interests of state governments will be played by the drums.
0: And the interests of the federal government will be played by the bass.
1: The interests of the people, the voters, will be played by conga drums. The ever-present poll of politics will be represented by the pluck of a guitar.
0: And the concept of an electoral college will be played on the keys. So let's go back to the summer of 1787. The delegates are meeting in Philadelphia
3: and there is a lot of politicking going on. They had no agreement on a nationwide basis about who could vote there's going to be a national vote for president, either there has to be one rule for the whole country about who can vote, and they knew they could never agree on that, or states could choose their own rules. But if states can choose their own rules for who votes, states have incentives to let more and more people vote in that election so that they get more and more power in the presidential election. That's not viable either. So they quickly threw out the idea of a nationwide election that would directly elect the president, and they thought about other alternatives— one other obvious alternative was to let Congress elect the president. And that seemed a little troubling to them because they wanted the president to be a check on Congress. They wanted a system of checks and balances. And once they decided that the president was going to be reelectable, it seemed clear that they didn't want Congress making the choice about whether to reelect the president because then the president wouldn't exercise independent judgment to push back against Congress. He would see Congress as the people who were going to renew his contract or not, right, and pander to them more. So that didn't seem like a good idea. There was some thought of letting the state legislatures do it, but that suffered from some of the same problems. What they needed, they thought, was a one-time electorate rather than a standing body that the president could, would cater to. And that generated the idea of what we know as the Electoral College, a group that would be selected within the states, with each state making its own rules about how to select its people. Now, it would be a mistake to think that they came up with this in a sort of systematic, theoretical way from first principles. If you read the debates of the convention on how to select the president, you find, like, they try one thing, they don't like that. They think of another thing, they don't like that. They keep on tinkering, they keep on revising, because there was really no good solution to the problem. You kind of get the idea that if the convention had gone on another six weeks, they would have proposed and accepted and revised 11 different things and you might have been left with something else. <laughs> right. Right? This is just where we wound up, because nothing was a good solution. In the first two elections, George Washington won unanimously. Right. Everyone sort of predicted that. The question was how the system was going to perform once Washington was gone. And as soon as he was gone, all kinds of things happened in the Electoral College that had not been predicted, mostly because of the rise of a phenomenon that the founders didn't count on, which was organized political parties. By 1800, in the famous... Jefferson-Adams elect, the second of the two Jefferson-Adams elections, Jefferson's people, Democratic-Republicans, figured out that if they got all of the Democratic-Republican electors in all the states to vote the same way, they could get their guy in. Right? And what this relied on was undermining the part of the Electoral College that was supposed to have the electors exercise independent judgment. They said, we're not going to do that. We're going to work as one unified team, right? We're going to have one guy who we're all going to support. When Jefferson's people decided in 1800 to have everyone vote the same way, they knew that they wanted Aaron Burr to be Jefferson's vice president. So they said, everyone vote for Jefferson and everyone vote for Burr. And they forgot to tell one person not to vote for Burr. And so the result was that Jefferson and Burr tied in the electoral college. Uh, which was not what they intended at all. But but that meant the election had to be settled in the House of Representatives, where eventually it was worked out and Jefferson became president. By about 1830, the de facto system that the Electoral College was done by political party on a winner-take-all system in each state had sort of congealed— It was no longer a body where people exercised independent judgment. It was no longer a body where different electors from the same state might vote different ways. We had something like what we recognize today, with one important exception, which is they still did not really have fully in place the thing that we think of as the popular vote. By late in the 19th century... We had something that really looked like what we have now. There's a broad citizen electorate. Basically, the same people who vote for the House of Representatives get to vote for presidential electors. And winner-take-all in each state chose the electors. Once we got to that point, it's really hard to see why you shouldn't have just a straight popular election for the president. And you create a situation where it's possible... That the majority of the voters want one person, and someone else becomes president, almost arbitrarily. But we never changed the system. And we never changed the system really for this combination of reasons. The first was people were used to it, right? You, right. You it's, don't,
0: hard to, it's hard to uh, advocate for change at, at that level.
3: Yeah, that's right. I mean, th- there's momentum, there's inertia. And especially so because it didn't seem to make much difference. For more than a hundred years, the winner of the popular vote always won in the Electoral College also. And it seemed like the Electoral College was functionally a rubber stamp of the popular vote. And if it wasn't going to make much difference, then there wasn't really a motivation to reform the system to something more rational. In fact, a lot of people probably liked the Electoral College, even when it didn't make much difference, because it was sort of a weird artifact of the founding and the Constitutional Convention. Americans love talking about the Constitutional Convention. And if you rationalize a part of the Constitution for modern conditions, you give up an opportunity to tell stories about the Constitutional Convention in conversations like this, right? You lose the occasion to say, well, why do we do this crazy thing? And that provokes (laughs) you to tell a story that everyone likes about the Constitutional Convention. So as long as it didn't make a difference, and it gave us this sort of narrative link to these wonderful stories about the Constitutional Convention, and people were used to it, It hung around. It stayed there. We're not in that situation anymore. We are now in conditions where it's quite clear that having the electoral college system rather than a national popular Democratic vote does make a difference twice in 16 years. Yes. And, you know, there's really no good reason that... Winning votes in some states rather than others ought to overcome how many votes you win nationwide. The president is a national official. The president represents all the people of the United States. If we were choosing on a blank slate today, as a democratic system, we would have a national popular vote. There's really no justification for choosing to have something else. It's just that it's what we have. And now we face a different problem. When something doesn't seem to make any difference, it's sometimes hard to motivate people to make a change because they say, why should we bother? When something does make a difference, if it's clear who the difference favors, it's hard to make a change because people don't like to give up advantage. It's hard under those circumstances to convince the people who have that advantage to reform the rules of the game to something that would be more rationally democratic. And it's very hard to amend, you can't amend the Constitution without big supermajority agreement. Yeah. There's a there's a remark, it may be apocryphal, it's attributed to Benjamin Franklin, that revolutions come into the world, half improvise and half compromise. And the Constitution was a revolution of its own in government. The compromises in the Constitution are all through the document. There are lots of deals cut in the Constitution to keep people at the table that have no principled basis, that had no principled basis at the time. The Senate is the most obvious one. And the Electoral College reflects that also.
0: So now, today, now that we know that those inequalities are... Injustices, and now that there is sort of a more common understanding that those compromises were masking those inequalities and those injustices, doesn't that give us a, a, a greater impetus
3: for rethinking that
0: whole thing, or shouldn't it?
3: I would hope so. I would hope that we would not go indefinitely into the future with a system th- whose only real justification is a set of compromises to power and sometimes to prejudice, that we would not make ourselves just because we're used to it and just because the people whom it benefits doesn't want to give it up. I would hope that we would exercise our own democratic agency and reform the system and make it better. Many people think we shouldn't tinker with the Constitution on these things. It shows a lack of respect for and a lack of faith in the founders to tinker with their work. And the ironic thing about that, the thing that that misses, I think, is what did the founders do? The founders changed the system of government they had substantially because they recognized that the one they had before wasn't working. To follow their example, really to honor the spirit of their project means not just accepting a system inherited from the past when it isn't working anymore, but really digging in and noticing the problem and asking the hard question and pushing through something that makes more sense that's a more functional democracy for the values of democracy as we understand it.
0: Thanks very much to law professor Richard Primus. Because the U.S. Constitution is, was, and probably always will be imperfect, it's sometimes easy to get frustrated with America, to think that the lingering imperfections we deal with, like inequality, diminish this nation's role in the world and in protecting liberty here at home. But consider what America looks like, warts and all, to someone like Khazir Khan, made this now-famous speech at the Democratic National Convention in the summer of 2016.
2: Donald Trump, you're asking Americans to trust you with their future. Let me ask you, have you even read the United States Constitution? I will gladly lend you my copy.
0: And then he pulled a pocket-sized Constitution from the inside of his coat. He believes to his core that this country is founded on principles and values that are worth upholding and fighting for, even though we don't always honor them in the best way.
2: Hate is un-American.
0: I spoke with Khan recently. He is one of the most patriotic Americans I've ever met. And he was born in Pakistan.
2: If you read the history of this country, we are all immigrants. Some of us came 200 years ago 100 years ago, some were brought here, some came voluntarily 10 years ago, we came here 30 years ago, but we are all part of the same process, but we are not immigrants anymore. Once we come here, we pay our taxes, we pay our dues, we take oath to defend the Constitution of United States and the values and laws of United States. And we take oath to keep this country safe and all. Uh, So that is what my imploring to every patriot American is that look at the foundation. I, I ask, read the Declaration of Independence, what this country went through before this republic came together, the price that forefathers paid to give us this gift of democracy. Learn the basic values of this country and you will come out so proud of what we are blessed with.
0: Sitting there, listening to Kazir Khan talk about his reverence for this country and its ideals, I gotta be honest, it made me just a little jealous. There are a lot of times when I think about America and its unfulfilled promises of liberty and equality that I just don't feel as patriotic as Khan clearly does every day.
1: Stephen, we have talked a lot about compromise and how compromise can compromise equality in this country. It's it's tough, though. Compromise is what makes our democracy great. It's the only
0: way to forge a nation out of disparate interests. And really, this is the only nation on the planet— that we've tried to do that with in in any real successful way, right? Uh, Most nations are formed around geographic definitions, uh, borders, rivers, mountains define what the the country is. And everybody who lives within that border has got to figure out how to get along or they're defined by religions or race. This is a nation formed around an idea and it brought a lot of different people from different backgrounds together – to try to agree on what that idea should be. So compromise was the only vehicle that was available to make this work in in that first instance. Some of these things we have to go back and try to fix now uh, because the founders were not up to the moral task of those questions in the 1700s. But It's really difficult to convince people to do that because, you know, stability is another great impetus in America that the less change you have, the more likely the country is itself to perpetuate and survive. And so people hesitate when they say – when you say, well, we're going to go back to the beginning and recast this pretty important institution.
1: Well, as we heard Richard Primus say, when the outcome clearly benefits one party. Yes. Yes. And that would right now be the Republican Party um, twice in 16 years. What is the incentive for them to compromise and change a system that is working in their political favor?
0: Well, I think the answer is that it's short term, right? This is happening because of demographic shifts that are taking place in the nation that are making uh, people who tend to be and vote Republican – into more of a minority than they have been, and th- those shifts are not being reflected quickly enough in the uh, in the electoral math that we do. But what you're seeing is, I think, a-, a pretty common dynamic when somebody who has power can look out over the horizon and see a day when that power might be threatened. Your actions tend to reflect it, and so you know, defense of the electoral college, which. There, there, would no, there would be no Republican defense of the Electoral College if, for instance, Al Gore and Hillary Clinton had been the beneficiaries of minority vote wins in 2000 and 2016. I mean the Republicans would be screaming their heads off about that as the Democrats are now. But for their own sake and for their own futures, what they really need to do is find ways to make the system fair, first of all, but then – To reach out to these constituencies that are threatening this power or threatening their majorities and make them part of the party and make them part of the platform and account for their interests in their agenda in order to win majority votes. You think about it this way. There has been one Republican president who has won the popular vote in years, uh, George W. Bush in 2004. Every other Republican presidential candidate has lost the popular vote. Even though in two of those elections now, we've seen them win anyway. That's an omen of, of change, if nothing else. It's a, it's a sign that your beliefs, your system of power and institution is somewhat in disfavor. I think in order to survive, in order to make themselves into a party of the future, they've got to embrace change. And that starts with embracing the unfairness that's baked into the electoral college. On the next Created Equal, we'll talk about the role the majority must play to improve the lives of minorities. To benefit from oppression is to be responsible for changing it. The executive producer of Created Equal is Laura Weber-Davis. Our producer is Jake Near. Our program director is Joan Isabella. And our engineer is Sam Bobian. The music of Created Equal is by Will Sessions. I'm Stephen Henderson. Thanks for listening.
3: WDET's work with the Detroit Journalism Cooperative is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the Knight Foundation, and the Ford Foundation's Renaissance Journalism Project.